So uh, just to review, I was uh, I have been suggesting as a theme for the retreat a kind of investigation and devotion to the present moment. And uh, that theme, you know, <laughs> it takes a, a lifetime of practice to understand what that theme means probably. But, you know, we have some particular techniques and so we can just continue to use the techniques that we have, like the retreat structure and schedule itself is a technique, and mindfulness of breathing is a technique, or noting whatever's predominant, noticing whatever's predominant, that's a technique. But all the techniques can be in the service of, like, uh, it can be seen as an activity of devotion to the present moment, giving ourselves away to the present moment, opening the heart up to the present moment whether we're doing mindfulness of breathing or mindful eating or mindful walking or noting whatever's predominant, noticing seeing, noticing hearing. We can see it in the context of this devotion, a kind of love, uh, uh, an activity of respect, like paying our respect to the present moment by returning to the breath or returning to what's predominant in the moment. Like I mentioned, that understanding, like what that means to be devoted to the present moment, you know, it, it sort of plays along a spectrum, understanding it superficially, under, understanding it deeply. And so last night I started to talk about the Eightfold Path in terms of how we understand this path of practice superficially and at times understand it deeply. And not to dismiss when we're participating with the practice superficially or to get attached to when we're, you know, practicing what seems in a deep way. Oh, now I really got it. But just understand that sometimes all we're capable of is being superficial or uh, kind of just doing our best to stay in the game. And other times, we really feel like not only are we in the game, we are the game, it's all game, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's all effortless. And it's like we are the path, or the path is us, or something like that. And to be, you know, sometimes it feels really linear, like I got a long hike, got a long journey, I wish I were further ahead. And sometimes that perspective seems absurd. You know, it seems crazy to have thought, I have a long way to go. This is a burden, having to walk this path. So tonight, um, I'll revisit those themes of devotion to the present moment and the Eightfold Path, but more from this end of the spectrum, uh, when the practice is seen or understood, felt as being more effortless, more natural, uh, less about somebody doing something. So, the easy way to think about the Eightfold Path, for those of you who like to hold these things in your mind, you can think of the Eightfold Path in three ways. So forget about the Eightfold piece, <laughs> the Threefold Eightfold Path. So we have wisdom, sila, samadhi, 
Panya, Sila, Samadhi. You can put them in any order. So wisdom, uh, harmony or ethical conduct, and the unification of mind or concentration of mind. So these are three aspects of the path, or three ways to practice our devotion to the present moment. We can practice devotion to the present moment in terms of the expression of our understanding. We can be mindful of how we're understanding things in the present moment. We can be mindful about how we're relating in the moment. This is sila. How are we relating to ourselves ourselves and others? We can be mindful of how we're relating to the mind, to the content, the qualities in the mind. This is samadhi. So we can be mindful in each of these three parts in a superficial way, like I talked last night, you know, wisdom, so being aware of our understanding in a, in a more basic way simply means we have enough wherewithal to get a sense that sometimes our understanding is skillful and sometimes our understanding is not skillful. Sometimes we're living out of a view that's narrow and despite not wanting to suffer, we do things that lead to suffering. We act in a way, because of our understanding, we act in ways that cause suffering for ourselves and others. Because this is how the world looks to us now. So initially, with wisdom, we're just beginning to see that, oh my God, you know, I must have been confused, or I must be confused. I must not be understanding correctly. This is wisdom, to know that we don't know, to know that we're confused, to know that we're angry and that angry uh, anger is unskillful, or to know that we're needy and neediness is unskillful, is skillful. So hopefully we all recognize this kind of wisdom. This is hopefully a kind of wisdom that we visit a lot. There are a lot of times when we're, we're noticing, oh, the mind is skillful. I can trust it. I can trust it to kind of go into this meeting um, because I don't see a lot of greed right now. I don't see a lot of fear. Or this mind is not trustworthy. There's a lot of sort of narrow qualities like fear or greediness or denial. I can't handle this. I need to disappear. And we can notice that in the mind, which is really skillful. And in a mundane level, just to review, for sila, for uh, the skillfulness of relating, it's just given that we know that sometimes our view is narrow, then we know we have to restrain ourselves from acting it out. Right? So it's like we're realizing that it's possible to use breaks. So even though we may, because of our wrong view, because of our egocentric view, we may be inclined to do unskillful things, we have the capacity to put on brakes. You know, don't say what I'm about to say. Don't do what I'm about to do. And this is the, the sort of basis of sila. And, and when we're in that place, when we do have a narrow view, we want to be willing to practice on this level. We want to be willing to, you know, use the tool that fits the job. And so, if we're a narrow-minded person about to do something stupid, it's totally appropriate to use kind of the 
relatively gross skill of restraint to keep ourselves from making mistakes and causing ourselves and others suffering. Why wouldn't we do that? Just like, you know, a mother or father would be willing to uh, jump at a child about to go into a busy street, even if it means tackling the child. You know, they would basically do anything to prevent them from getting harmed, including hurting them, if that avoids them being harmed more severely. And so in the same way, we're willing to, even though restraining is kind of a gross spiritual tool, like because it involves tension, it's better than acting out that will put in motion tension for a long time. And then I just began to talk last night about samadhi in this basic way, you know, arising again from a basic right view that understand sometimes the mind is skillful, it's understanding things in a skillful way, and sometimes the mind is narrow and it's understanding things in a not so skillful way. And we understand the importance of restraining in terms of our behavior, and in terms of our mind, we understand the need to um, recognize and abandon the hindrances. Just like with sila on this level, we're kind of uh, putting the brakes on our actions in the wor world and our words out there in the world. But with the samadhi practice on this level of practice, this level of the path rather, we're willing to use brakes uh, to sort of shape the qualities in the mind. So we go to work, we notice, oh my God, that's a, that's a self-hatred mind going on there. You know, what can I do to abandon this habit of criticizing myself, hating myself, judging myself? You know, what skillful means do I have? What, what tools do I have to cause this mental activity to be abandoned and to prevent it from arising or to maintain wholesome states, to develop and maintain wholesome states? These are the four exertions, you know, to abandon and prevent unskillful states and to develop and maintain wholesome states. So there's a lot of work. I mean, this is really the heart of meditation practice. Probably, I'm assuming for you, but for me, this seems to be true. You know, the majority of my time sitting, I am, uh, I am to some degree abandoning and preventing unwholesome states from arising and developing and maintaining wholesome states. So I'm as an ego being, I am taking responsibility for the qualities that are in the mind. I'm assessing them, and I'm doing what I can. My first and foremost responsibility as a meditator, from a self-centered point of view, is to create a wholesome environment, a wholesome mental environment, by abandoning unwholesome, preventing unwholesome from arising, developing wholesome states, and maintaining them. Now, of course, mindfulness is one of those great wholesome states of mind that causes the abandoning of unwholesome, preventing unwholesome from arising, and it itself is a wholesome. So if we're developing mindfulness and maintaining it, it's basically all we need to remember. You know, being mindful, being devoted to, pre to being present, to the present moment, is a way of shaping the mind in a wholesome direction. But 
the, the flavor we should get from hearing about our spiritual path from this perspective is, my God, and Linda talked about this in our small group tonight, today, you know, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> and it is a lot of work. The thing is, we have every incentive to do this work. So this is like uh, that clever statement that uh, the hard way is the easy way. So on this level where we we get that sometimes the mind is skillful, sometimes it's unskillful, and that when it's unskillful, we're likely to act it out in terms of our relationships, and we're likely to act it out in terms of the qualities in the mind. Well, even though it's hard, it's much easier to do what we can to not live out of an unwholesome view, to correct it, and to restrain ourselves from acting it out in the world, and to restrain ourselves from acting it out in the mind than it is to just allow unwholesome view to act itself out in the world and in the mind. Because all we're doing is increasing that tendency, whatever that unwholesome tendency might be. So even though it does feel like a burden, if we assess the situation correctly, we don't really have any choice. And the thing is, human beings, you know, we're not afraid of hard work. We just don't want to work in an unproductive way. So the, the key is this, uh, this basis of uh, this whole path that I've described is based in karma, that intentions matter, that we um, have a choice here to continue setting in motion pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief. The Buddha has this nice long list. <laughs> Birth, death, ignorance, suffering. You know? We have the choice to set that in motion or to set something else in motion. The unshakable release of the heart. And so we do our best because of that. To whatever degree we have faith in karma that intentions do matter, uh, making effort to have right view, to have right action, to have right mind is worth it. Negligence isn't, uh, isn't an acceptable path to us. It's not about somebody telling us this from outside. This is a recognition we have ourselves as we assess the situation. But fortunately, it doesn't end there. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the samadhi piece, but when we uh, uh, when we begin to develop samadhi, it's really uh, samadhi again is understanding right and wrong view, narrow versus an open perspective, self-centered versus a non-self-centered perspective. The way that plays out in, the, in terms of samadhi is, uh, in different ways, discovering that the whole uh, root of self-centeredness is relating to pain in an unskillful way. And this is why samadhi is such a big deal in Buddhism, the inner happiness that comes from the mind being pure, the bliss, the inner bliss. The reason why that is so emphasized in Buddhism 
is it sheds light on how wrong view comes to be. Because wrong view comes to be, the self-centered view comes to be when there's a pain and we get confused by the pain. So because we misperceive the pain, it appears to be appropriate to run from it or to attack it. And that leads to more pain and on and on like that because every time there's pain, we feel inspired to run from it or attack it and that just makes us more confused and the deeper the confusion, the more likely we are to misperceive it. Now the thing with samadhi, when we do gain skill at taking responsibility for the shape of the mind and abandoning what's agitating in the mind, the unskillful tendencies, and cultivating and maintaining the skillful qualities of mind, like loving-kindness, for example, then the mind gets happier and happier. And uh, as it said, as the Buddha says, samadhi is a temporary liberation from craving. So the neediness, the deep existential neediness is abandoned temporarily when we have a deep state of samadhi. Whether you're doing it, someone asked about music and Theravada Buddhism in a note. Well, one of the ways that people easily access these deep states of samadhi is doing chanting or singing even or service is another great samadhi activity you know just giving our life away to some activity scrubbing the pots upstairs or setting out breakfast or vacuuming raising a child in moments can be a deep experience of samadhi just giving yourself away to you know the playing with the tinker toys one more time you know the child is sort of in this stage maybe ceaselessly interested and instead of like getting so bored and trying to get the child interested in another activity you just like give yourself over to that activity with the child become sort of completely surrendered to that moment to that interaction so this is the joy of service but in terms of meditation practice it's simply opening to life as it is, for example, the breath or the loving-kindness practice or whatever practice you might be doing, even a reflection on impermanence. We open to it so wholly, completely, with mindfulness, with awareness, that there's nothing unwholesome in the mind. There's no greed in the mind. There's no aversion in the mind. There's no distraction in the mind. So this is what is meant by samadhi. The mind is pure, it's free of these self-centered habits. And it's experienced as joy. It's bright, it's alive, it's free. And then this temporarily extinguishes this deep existential neediness. So now it's possible for right view to arise because, we're, because of the absence of that deep pain there's no cause for wrong view to arise. We're not out of the woods because if pain arises, wrong view will re-arise. But because there's no pain, we get a taste of liberation because now the mind's not confused, not because it's wise, but because there's no confusing pain. We've generated so much inner happiness that all of the neurotic pain that we have, all the fear that we have in life, 
all the feelings of regret that we have, it's all suppressed because of the strength of that state of concentration, of inner joy, from the mind that's temporarily pure of agitating states. And so now we have like a little window of right view. And so then we can understand something about right view, like uh, we can start to see, one, that it's available. You know, so instead of like, no, our right view being, well, sometimes my mind is unskillful, you know, sometimes I'm really egocentric, narrow, uh, really driven by fear or driven by loneliness or neediness, sometimes not. But now we, we, uh, the sort of the neurotic view is sort of seen in a different light. It's seen like uh, really unnecessary. Uh, it's like that's not, that. it's like instead of like, well, sometimes I'm here and I don't know why, and sometimes I'm here and I don't know why. Now we sort of get it. We start to understand, oh, this is a view that comes when the mind isn't relaxed when the heart isn't relaxed, when the heart is neurotic. It really teaches us something about the whole path. It's like we start to get that the whole path, wise view, wise action, wise uh, working with the mind, samadhi, it's all about relaxation. It's all about trust. There's an interesting story that Rita Gross sent me. Um, Maybe some of you heard this or made the rounds to your inbox. But uh, evidently, uh, I guess it was a couple years ago, the Washington uh, Post decided to do something to just, uh, I think, to have an interesting piece uh, to write about. They had uh, Joshua Bell, who some of you know is a well-known violinist, and I think he has uh, Stradivarius worth more than $3 million. And uh, he went down into the metro station, the subway in Washington, D.C., and he played for 45 minutes or an hour, and they observed him. You know, And of course, they didn't announce this was going to happen. And uh, I'll just read some of the, <laughs> the things that happened. Um, so he was playing some of the most challenging Bach pieces. And uh, approximately 2,000 people went through the station during that time, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and hurried to meet a schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the hat and without stopping continued to walk. Six minutes. A young man leaned against the wall and listened to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. Ten minutes. A three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. The action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. <laughs> Forty-five minutes. The musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $32. One hour. He finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. 
So this is, uh, I'm, I'm mentioning this in terms of samadhi practice because as I explained, the samadhi's importance is that um, if the mind knows how to skillfully pay attention to what's beautiful, that beauty, that uh, the awareness, the intimacy with what's wholesome and beautiful temporarily suppresses wrong view because it, it suppresses the pain that is the cause. The, the pain is the cause for the misperception which leads to wrong view. So if we pay attention to what's beautiful, happiness arises, the mind no longer is attending to the pain with misperception, to the basic existential pain and misperceiving it leading to wrong view. So there's temporary liberation from wrong view. So part of the practice is just to know how to see what's beautiful. And you know, sometimes we're in such a funk when we're on retreat or doing a practice, it's like it doesn't even occur to us to notice the wholesome states of mind that are present. Buddha talks about this all the time. I mean, this is not, for whatever reason, mentioned so much, but the Buddha, the primary way he talked about practice, meditation practice, was, you know, in terms of the jhanas. And the jhanas, the sort of development of absorption or unification of mind, is the development of this inner happiness. And he talked about it over and over again. Whether one did it with the metta, loving-kindness practices, or you know the other three, compassion, joy, and equanimity, or did it by reflecting on the beautiful qualities of the Buddha or a wise person, or did it by concentrating on color, or concentrating on the breath. You know, there were 40-some objects that the Buddha suggested were worthy objects to develop this inner joy. So here's one of the common ways he talked about it. When one knows that these five hindrances are cleared, gladness arises. From gladness comes delight. From delight in the mind, the body is calm. With a calm body, one's filled, one feels joy. And with joy, the mind is concentrated. I think in uh, one of the small groups today, this phrase of the Buddhas came up, um, a mind, the mind is naturally radiant and clear, but it's obscured by visiting defilements. And what that means, radiant is sort of code for the knowing quality of mind. So the mind is naturally knowing, naturally aware, and pure or clear. This is code for empty, meaning there's really nothing there except the knowing. So there's knowing and then there's emptiness. And this characterizes wisdom as we begin to recognize when we're not under the influence of our sort of neurotic reaction, misperception of pain. So it's when we're happy, when the mind is happy, we recognize this about the mind. We recognize that it's naturally radiant. Knowing is effortless and pure. That, that that's all there is. And this is uh, several came up in several of conversations in the small groups about 
people having some insight and then uh, getting distracted. Because a lot of times what happens is joy arises, but we don't get interested in that relative freedom of mind. Because now, because of the joy in the mind, the mind's not neurotic. And so we have to be mindful of the freedom from neurotic tendencies, from the neurotic grasping, basically. We have to be interested in the mind not grasping. Otherwise, it won't know what to do with the joy. It only knows one thing, grasp. (laughs) So it takes the joy and it turns it into grasping. Well, now I'll do this. Now I'll do that. I feel enlivened. I feel joyful. So now I'll solve problems. I'll fix my life. I'll fix other people's lives. Because that's, that's what the mind does with energy. It, it solves problems. You know, when we lack energy, we try to deny that we have problems. We try to distract ourselves from our problems. And when we feel energized, we feel like, well, now I'll solve my problems. But what we want to do is we want to look at the mind. We want to take that energy and we want to look at the mind itself. See it. And, and see the mind uh, beyond good and bad. So initially, right view was very much in the world of good and bad. Remember, it was like, yeah, there are skillful mind states or skillful ways of understanding and unskillful understanding. Now, with this sort of wiser, deeper perspective, we understand that uh, that these, uh, that this freedom can't be defiled. It's like stainless. This, it can be temporarily obscured, but it can't actually be harmed in any way. So this is the beginning of what we'd call super mundane right view. (laughs) So regular right view, regular wisdom, is just a basic understanding that sometimes my understanding is really narrow, leading to unskillful, tends to lead to unskillful actions and unskillful thoughts, thinking. Sometimes my view is more skillful, less self-centered. But deeper, wiser right view is understanding that uh, ultimately the mind or heart can't be defiled. It's just temporarily defiled. Its nature is to be radiant and empty, meaning you can't harm it. There's nothing there to harm. There's nothing there to destroy. And see, that freedom in view, that development of view, changes then our relationship to sila, like how do we how we relate. Because it starts to embolden the heart. Like there's this natural, again, it's not, at this point, it's not somebody feeling emboldened. It's more this sort of organic confidence. Confidence in the beauty, the essential beauty of the heart. And so then see the practice, instead of emphasizing restraining ourselves from harmful actions, uh, is much more moving in the the direction of kind of the um, natural and effortless expression of the four immeasurables. So it's like um, noticing how naturally kindness flows out of that view that the heart is naturally radiant and pure. Well, it's relatively easy to meet the world with kindness and to meet suffering with compassion and to meet beauty with 
this appreciative joy and to meet all things with equanimity when we're in that place. Because it's like the heart, when the heart is recognizing its natural radiance and purity, it has this sense of abundance. There's no sense of scarcity or neediness, right? Because it's sort of free of that. So this natural abundance is what we call an inner generosity. So the only emotions that make sense are emotions that are about kind of upwelling of the heart. Like kindness is an upwelling of the heart. Gratitude is an upwelling of the heart. Forgiveness is an upwelling of the heart. Joy, you know, appreciative joy is an upwelling of the heart. Compassion is an upwelling of the heart. Same with equanimity. These are, that's why they're called immeasurables because there's a sense, there's an experience that there doesn't need to be anybody doing this. You can tap into this even in your metta practice, you know, where when the practice gets a little momentum and it just feels like, wow, I didn't realize there's so much love here. Even for ordinary neutral people that I don't even know where. Well, just like so much love for everybody on the retreat. I don't even know their names. I don't even know anything about them. But I just have this very powerful, seemingly endless goodwill for the other people on retreat. And we just notice how effortless, how natural that feels, how good it feels. So the, you know, the expression of wise view and sila in, on this level of the path is this quality of effortlessness, naturalness, an absence of, you know, somebody worried about doing it wrong or somebody trying to do it right. The Buddha has this nice image. As a bee gathering nectar does not harm or disturb the color and fragrance of the flower, so do the wise move through the world. So this idea of uh, not leaving any trace at all. And another uh, statement from the Dhammapada, freeing themselves from longing unhindered by habitual grasping those who align themselves with the way delight in non-attachment and while still in the world are radiant. And then one more. With an image of liberation as the goal, the wise abandon darkness and cherish light, leaving petty security behind and seek freedom from attachment. So the sense of security from a self-centered point of view is no longer seen as a a noble aspiration, which is what arises initially. You know, it's like I want, you know, I want to protect myself with skill. That's kind of the initial right view, and then that eventually is seen as like even that attachment's too much. Even the attachment to being a skillful one, being attached to not making a mistake, we we begin to align with the naturalness of wisdom. Instead of taking wisdom personal, like I've got to be wise in this situation, we trust wisdom to arise naturally in the moment. So this is another expression of, of this sort of development of the path. So instead of leading into the next moment with skill, okay, I got my ducks in a row, I've got my lists, you know, I got the Buddhist lists and I've got my sort of practice history and I'm armored by my, you know, and I'm ready to kind of go back into the world. It's like, uh, it's a different feeling, like entering 
the world naked, entering the next moment naked. All we have is our, our big, empty, radiant heart, the heart that is willing to be intimate, willing to be devoted to the present moment. And we're trusting that everything that needs to happen will arise out of that. And if we make a mistake, it will get transformed into learning, transmuted into learning. And if we're skillful, it will be turned into joy, right? We see, oh, skill, that's beautiful. Beautiful leads to joy. Joy leads to samadhi. Samadhi leads to clarification of view or the reestablishment of right view. Right view leads to more skill in the world, which leads to, you know, more skill leads to the joy of seeing skill, because it's beautiful. Handling a situation skillfully is beautiful. And we should notice that it has nothing to do with self-centered pride. If we're in a really sticky situation and, uh, and we, in a sense, just sort of give ourselves over to the situation and end up speaking skillfully, saying the right thing or refraining in the right way, depending on what's needed, when we walk away from that situation and looking back on it in hindsight, it should be seen as a beautiful thing. It should be like listening to Joshua Bell play Bach on a $3.5 million Stradivarius. <laughs> you know, it should be like, wow, that was astounding. You know, how skillful the mind was, was astounding. And it isn't personal, but it should have the result of like joy arising at the skill. Wow, that's so beautiful, what, it just, was, what just happened. And then that joy... You know, it's like any neurotic tendencies get suppressed when the when we're clearly experiencing that joy. It's like medicine for neurotic individuals. Wholesome joy is like medicine because it, it suppresses the symptoms of our basic illness, which is running from pain, running from this existential loneliness or fear or whatever whatever its particular quality is for us. And we stop that neurotic running, that neurotic reacting, and everything starts to clear up. We get a lay of the land. Oh, I don't need to run. I just need to relax. I just need to trust, trust the heart more and more. And so that's the clarification of view. And you see how this really builds, sets in motion, a powerful feedback loop, because that affects our action, it affects how the, the qualities in the mind which supports more rise view and on and on like that, leading onward to wisdom. So it's nice to hear about that, and we probably, all of us, recognize that uh, higher functioning of the path to some degree, the qualities of effortlessness, that sort of natural feedback mechanism where it sort of starts to feel impersonal, and really the only engine for that kind of spiritual path is faith or trust in the goodness, the essential goodness of the heart. and and then the natural devotion to awareness, devotion to being present, uh, is sort of the only action. But that again is just coming out of 
the, uh, the practice. And then the nice thing about having those tastes is then it really, we begin to more clearly recognize when our view feels more rigid and narrow. And uh, it's interesting, you know, of course we're going to want to react because initially we're going to get attached to the effortlessness that we felt and the sort of sense of inherent goodness. And, you know, we can feel cheated because then the more we want it back, the more we dig ourselves into that neurotic pattern of running. So we're running from our pain because we know it doesn't have to be this way. But we forgot we've forgotten the mechanism. And we keep we can get caught in this sort of this sort of loop. And it's nice to point it out because uh, sort of wise humor really helps here. Sort of this dance between cynicism and idealism. You know, cynicism is where, and it, it sort of, there's some wisdom to the cynicism. This like uh, striving, making effort is for fools, you know, because I know it's not about effort. I know it's not about self-centered effort, you know, so we, we kind of say that to ourselves until so we're just kind of sitting here waiting for our neurotic pattern reactivity to end. But that's not the way it ends. Sort of being afraid of effort doesn't lead to this transformation. Same thing with idealism. You know, you know, thinking, you know, that uh, uh, there's something out there to get. And because we fall into both camps, you know, they lead to one another. Like when we're really idealistic and we think we can get back, we've sort of objectified the freedom that we've experienced in the past, once we have objectified it, then we look for it outside of the present moment. No, it's not here. Clearly it's not here. So it must be there. We concoct a there, and then we aspire to it, and then we get disappointed, and then we get cynical. Ah, <laughs> practice doesn't help, effort doesn't help. And we, we somehow, it seems strange, like, Striving not to strive seems appropriate, <laughs> even though striving to, to get somewhere doesn't seem appropriate. So we're kind of, we get attached to sort of nothing works, you know, or giving up or resignation. It's like, as if that makes sense. So just recognize qualities of cynicism in your practice, recognize qualities of idealism, like hoping. Because when we're hoping, then there's a then we're still in that neurotic place of somebody who's going to get something, and we can bet it's a setup. And the same thing with cynicism. It's so interesting. I don't know how big this discussion is, but uh, I pick it up a lot. I read uh, Andrew Sullivan's blog on at the Atlantic Monthly uh, website. He's a well-known journalist and. There's a few threads that continue, have continued for the year or so that I've been reading or checking it on it. And one of the threads is this debate. I think he's Catholic and, uh, uh, and a pretty religious person as far, as far as I can understand. And so there's this ongoing debate between uh, so what it means to be a religious person in this time. And uh, even though he considers himself a religious person and I think with the Catholic Church you know he's also he's a, he's a gay man and uh, I take that he's pro-abortion rights and 
you know, a lot of things at the Catholic Church. So part of the debate is just about the social issues. And part of it is just the, the sort of uh, a lot of books that have been written about atheism. And just the, the different stances that we take, you know, we can get idealistic about anything. We can get idealistic about the negative or the positive. And we can get cynical about anything. So that what defines these views, this this aspect of wrong view, is the rigidity, is the fixedness of it. So right view, in a Buddhist sense, is going beyond the rigidity or the fixedness of any view. It's seeing the limitation of any view. It's not about a view. It's about letting go. So, so we could say there's one view that leads to its own demise. It's the view of letting go, right? It's the value of letting go. That's the view we have. And the more we value this value of letting go, it occurs to us to let go of that too, <laughs> to let go of the value of letting go. Because at that point, when that occurs to us, letting go has become the habit of the mind. So we don't need it as a value anymore. We don't need the view of the Dhamma, of the Buddhist teachings. But initially, it's really helpful to kind of say, I practice Buddhism, which is just code for saying, I practice letting go. I practice just seeing things and letting go. So we can, it's nice, you know, we have a Buddhist meditation center and we have Buddhist retreats and I have my Buddhist shawl that's keeping my papers from sliding off of the stand. And, you know, we, we have the accoutrements, our Buddhist statue. And the, all of these things hopefully remind us to let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. This too, and then this too. To see and let go. To open and let go. To receive and let go. But initially, you know, we can build an altar to the view of letting go. But eventually, we don't want to be stuck by the view of letting go. Even that needs to be let go. So I'll just end by sharing a couple of poems from some of the ancient nuns from the time of the Buddha. Some of you know that in the Pali Canon, this collection of discourses by the Buddha, there's also a few sections that aren't sayings or talks by the Buddha, but are either other people speaking or uh, yeah, other monks and nuns basically speaking. And uh, there's a whole section of the utterances of the early nuns. And uh, here's one from Sela. After her morning alms round, she sat down at the foot of, the, of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one. Mara is our, you could say, our habit energy, our, our neurotic habit energy. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the Bukuni, Sela, desiring to make her fall away from concentration, approached her and addressed her in verse. So remember, concentration is when the momentum of abandoning what's agitating unskillful states of mind and the cultivation and maintenance of wholesome states of mind, when that gets some real momentum, then concentration is established. Okay, so Mara, this habit energy arises and says to her, 
by whom has this puppet been created? Right? So isn't it just like our minds to ask a Dharma question, you know, to disguise our neurotic tendency by seemingly being interested in the practice? Yeah. By whom has this puppet been created? Where is the maker of this puppet? Where has the puppet arisen? Where does the puppet cease? Then it occurred to the Bhikkhuni Sela, now who is this? This is Mara, the evil one, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. Just like we might say, ah, just thoughts, or just worry, just worrying, happening, worrying being known. Then Bhikkhuni Sela, having understood, this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses, this puppet is not made by itself, nor is this misery made by another. It has come to be dependent on a cause, and when the cause dissolves, then it will cease. As when a seed is sown in a field, it grows depending on the factors. It requires both the soil's nutri uh, nutrients and a steady supply of moisture. Just so, the aggregates and elements and these six bases of sensory contact, right? So the aggregates and elements, just the mind and body, these six bases of sensory contact, so seeing and hearing and smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, have come to be dependent on a cause. When the cause dissolves, they will cease. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhikkhuni Sela knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. Right? Because in a way, in a, in a very real way, our neurotic tendencies have a kind of intelligence. I mean, they're in a way a creature, as much as anything is a creature. Like when I watch my cat, you know, do her little neurotic dances, like when she's getting hungry, we feed her once a day, you know, and so as that time approaches, she, she has these sort of neurotic things that she does. Well, that's exactly what my mind does, too, you know. <laughs> when it's under the influence of some neurotic pattern, it just acts out in very predictable ways. And it and so that's just like, instead of thinking our, of ourselves as one thing, we're just this uh, collection of patterns. And it's just a question of what pattern has gotten ignited because of certain causes and conditions. And when that the cause for that pattern no longer exists, the pattern falls away. And so, you know, in an, in an enlightened mind, when there's no cause, no pattern arises. What remains is stillness. But then, in that experience of stillness, there's no attachment to the stillness. Oh, I really like the stillness. So as soon as a hungry person arises in the field of awareness, well, then the enlightened being will do something about the hungry person because there was no attachment to the stillness. Love or compassion just flows naturally out of the stillness. And then when there's nothing that needs to be done, the mind resides back in stillness. It disappears as a pattern. There's, there's no pattern for the pattern's sake. Patterns are just the natural response to the particular conditions. But see, with our neurotic minds, we're afraid of the pattern ceasing. So the kinds of patterns we have are self-replicating. One pattern leads to another. One thought leads to another. We're, we're basically afraid of silence, of stillness, of the pure quality of the mind. So this is where that insight into the nature of the mind begins to change everything. 
we see the empty nature of mind, we realize it's nothing to be afraid of. It's what we've been looking for. It allows the heart to rest, which is what we always thought was possible. We just thought we'd get to a resting place by running and fighting and struggling. And now we realize it's already here. So we'd run more. This is uh, Vajira, Vajira. Then in the morning, the bhikkhuni Vajira, dressed and taking bowl and robe, entered Savati for alms to collect her food for the day. When she had walked for alms in Savati and returned from her alms round after her meal, she went to Blind Men's Grove for the day's abiding. Having plunged into Blind Men's Grove, she sat down at the foot of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror, and the Bhikkhuni Vajira, desiring to make her fall away from concentration, approached her and addressed her in verse. By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of the being? Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Then it occurred to Bhikkhuni Vajira. Now who is that that recited the verse? A human being or a non-human being? Then it occurred to her, this is Mara, the evil one who has recited the verse, desiring to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in me, desiring to make me fall away from concentration. So she replied to him in verses, Why now do you assume a being, Mara? Have you grasped a view? Right? So, because uh, Mara said, By whom has this being been created? So Virjira is recognizing that that concept being, right, that, that's extra. Where did that, why see a being there? Have you grasped the view? This is a heap of sheer constructions. There is no, uh, here no being is found. Just as an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used, so when the aggregates, the mind and body are present, there's the convention, a being. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Pakuni, Vajira, knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. So this is a really beautiful statement. It's only suffering that comes to be, suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, nothing but suffering ceases. And this is this understanding of the radiant and pure or empty mind. So when suffering does come to be for us, we can practice not being confused. It's just suffering. We don't need to impute somebody who's suffering. Then we're back in that mundane place where we feel like we have to protect ourselves from the suffering. And we we concoct a sense of, I've got to be skillful. So when there's more space in the mind, more confidence in the mind, then we can even allow suffering to arise without being confused by it. Knowing that, yes, suffering has arisen, suffering will eventually cease. There's fear, fear will cease. There's loneliness, loneliness will eventually cease. Because isn't it true that we make so many problems when suffering arises by struggling with the experience. We set in motion so many things. It's like we'll be sitting in a really peaceful set and then 
some disturbing memories. But the disturbing memory is one thing, but our reaction to it is something else. I forget where it was, but I recently told a story that Swami Satchidananda used to tell about some, I think it's an old sort of Indian, uh, Asian Indian uh, kind of wise tale about a saint sitting at the side of the road and one day he sees this being walking along the road and he didn't recognize it as a human being. He had psychic powers. And so he was looking and couldn't quite figure out what kind of being this being was. And so he asked, who are you? And the being said, uh, I'm cholera. I am the manifestation of this disease, cholera. And the saint said, oh, I've heard you've, you've killed... Uh, thousands and thousands of people in this nearby town, the city. And Collar said, no, 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 you're mistaken. I've killed a couple hundred. Fear, my friend Fear, he's killed the rest. <laughs> and so this is like, this is like a, a metaphor for our minds that, uh, that suffering, you know, because of our conditioning, the way the mind is, just because of our human existence, pain and suffering will arise for us. But we don't have to make it more than what it is. We can just let suffering be suffering without it being somebody who's suffering. Just And this is like devotion to the present moment. So when there's suffering, can we be devoted to it? It's the neurotic self that can't be devo devoted to suffering and decides to run, decides to be afraid, to proliferate around it. I mean, think about how much suffering there is in our denial of death. This is what got me started in the, on my path. I, I had become, as a young adult, obsessed with death and what it meant. And I read this book that was all about the denial of death. That's what it was called, denial of death. It really turned my life upside down and led to some really powerful insights about death. But the, his book, you know, was really a, a psychological analysis of what human beings do to deny their mortality and how so much of what we call success in the world is just people's neurotic attempts to deny their morality, to kind of set something permanent in motion so that they feel like their impermanent life had some meaning beyond their mortality. No, of course, a lot of beautiful things come of this neurotic activity, but it's ultimately not satisfying, you know, to even have, um, it may make it easier to let go at the time of death, but, you know, no matter what we do, it's still going to be fragile. No matter what institution we establish or no matter what disease we cure, it's, uh, it doesn't really address the impermanence. So, reflecting on the path in this way, these three aspects of the path, understanding skill, understanding the need for breaks in terms of our action, understanding the need for skill and purifying the mind leading to samadhi, so that we experience temporary freedom from our neurotic habits and we have a new perspective on our life free from the neurotic filter 
where we start to see the, the inherent beauty of the mind, our heart, trust it more deeply, start seeing our neurotic habits as visiting defilements that temporarily cloud the mind or the heart or what's essentially good. And it, it sort of shifts our whole practice into faith and trust, and really deepens our commitment. So let's leave it here, take a moment and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.